0: Good morning. We're turning in our Bibles now to Psalm 102, which is a natural connection with what has just been sung. And here you and I are going to be addressing for the next few moments, the whole matter of the relationship of pain and prayer. And so if you would turn there in your Bibles now to Psalm 102 like to be able to explore this subject together with you. And one of the things that I've posed in our insert this morning is, um, are pain and suffering synonymous? Or are there points of uh, difference between the two? This is something that we're going to be thinking through. And I'd like to begin by noting with you as I begin reading this, the superscription where you and I are told that this is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And it's capital L-O-R-D, so that's the covenantal relational name for the sovereign one, Yahweh. And so now, here is the prayer, and I'll take it down through verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let me cry, my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. And answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So there you have an extraordinary downward uh, spiral happening, don't you? Is there something to be had in terms of a turning point? There is. I'll simply read verse 12 and go to the Lord in prayer. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all generations. In other words, you've just been introduced to another but God moment in the scriptures. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, there are many in the various services today watching online right now or in the days to come who need this but you, O Lord. A but God moment that interrupts the downward spiral and turns everything around. Sometimes that happens gradually. Other times it happens suddenly. But what we need now, Father, is truth, eternal truth to come bearing down upon the mindset of the person who perhaps physically, emotionally, whatever the case might be, finds themselves as the, as the psalmist is described here as someone who's afflicted. For others of us, what we need is to have extraordinary insights to how to counsel such people. How to guide such people that we get beyond our own human opinions and begin to address things from a from a above and beyond moment we need to turn to you. there is wisdom that comes from above and that's what we need at this moment so whether we're talking at this moment somebody online who's hurting whether we're addressing someone in the prior service who's sitting, or in this service, days to come, whether it be those that counsel such and have got to give extraordinary wisdom in short periods of time because time's limited in talking with such. What we need, Father, is to harness the sum total of your truth and package it in a way where we can say more with less. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name, amen. My former pastor, Warren Wearsby writes, a dear friend found herself in a sea of trouble. Her husband had gone blind She had come down with an incurable disease. She had a slight stroke, furthermore, forced her to retire from her secretarial job and become a full-time seeing-eye wife. And although they had a lot of friends, they didn't have children. Well, attempting to encourage her one day, I, I said, I want you to know that we're praying for you. She responded, I appreciate that. What are you praying for God to do? As she waited for my reply, I found myself struggling for a mature answer. I had never really been confronted with the question before. And after all, when people are suffering, you pray for healing, if it's God's will, for strength, for special mercy and pain, so on. And this is what I told her. Thank you, she said. But pastor, please pray for one more request. What is it? I asked. Pray that I won't waste all of this suffering. When it comes to the experiences of life, we can waste them, we can spend them, or we can invest them. Each of the experiences come as a way in which you and I are called to manage whatever opportunity and responsibility that is presented to us, even in the form of suffering, which is what Jesus did in Gethsemane on the way to Calvary. More of that in a moment. But C.S. Lewis put it this way, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What I want to do is to explore this whole matter of pain as it relates to prayer And allowing for God's word to be able to speak to what needs to be understood in this given moment. What you and I are going to be able to see here is that there are two trajectories. One in verse 1 through 11, it's downward. The other 12 through 22, upward. We've got to ask ourselves, and what arrested the downward trajectory and turned it around? That's what we're going to explore in these moments to come. But first, the downward out of 1 through 11. That you and I as we consider what I will call contrasting views of pain and suffering. I want to begin here by noting the downward trajectory and it's due to temporal thinking. He starts off well, doesn't he? A word he's praying. Good for him. He starts off Hear my prayer, O Lord. Tremendous. L-O-R-D, capitalized from the Hebrew again, Yahweh, covenantal relationship, no name for God. But here's the rub. It's the last time he references the Lord in verses 1 through 11. It's almost as if the Lord disappears in the midst of all things, his prayer. I would say there comes a point where he might not be praying, but merely vocalizing. And that's something that you and I might need to grapple with on occasion and ask ourselves, am I just getting wordy here? Or am I getting to the very core of the issue that needs to be addressed? What other thing stands out to me at this point is that if you look, and you might want to circle this if you've got a text in front of you, words such as I, me, my occur 26 times in verses 1 through 11. In other words, what we begin to find here is that there is a sense of self-absorption in his pain. That's not unusual. Uh, What we have to do is to begin to ponder, what do I do with the pain that I'm experiencing at this particular moment in time? Hear my prayer. He says, oh, Lord, he is fast out of the starting block, isn't he? That's good. Then he adds, let my cry come to you. Now, already he said my prayer, my cry. But then he now adds this in verse two, and it ties directly to what was just sung a few moments ago. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Well, he knows the scriptures. And back in Numbers chapter six, you and I are informed of what is known as the ironic blessing. I pray this sometimes at weddings, at the graduation gatherings on Sunday mornings, once a year, where God has challenged Moses with these words, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But in the heart of it all, The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The challenge is, is that we reach certain points in time when we wonder, has God turned his face in the opposite direction? Is he no longer taking into account what it is that I'm experiencing at this moment in time? And how do you pray under such circumstances? Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. So obviously he, he is speaking from very first-hand personal experience. And then the appeal. Incline your ear to me and answer me speedily in the day when I call. In other words, this is someone who wants fast action, quick response. Divine intervention on his time. Not necessarily taking into account the whole issue of God's time. Reading a biography. is the biography of a missionary. Her name is Kari Seidenstricker. She was the mother of Pearl Buck. The Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. Spending time in prayer each day is a discipline that is often difficult to maintain. Missionaries sometimes struggle more with time pressure than others. And Carrie found this to be true during her years in China. She was a busy mother who prayed swiftly and could have identified with the prayer the psalmist uh, stated, quote, when I call, answer me quickly. Now Carrie would have been lost in obscurity if it had not been for Pearl Buck, her daughter. And from the beginning, Carrie had mixed emotions about spending her life in China, raising the children there. She had lost three little ones, for those of us who have lost children, grandchildren somewhere along the way. Feared for her other children. But Pearl watched her mother in action and pondered her mother in prayer her life graphically contrasted to her husband's. In a story Pearl Buck tells, she asked her mother one morning after breakfast, "Mum, what makes the red marks on father's forehead? Now there are the marks from his fingers where he leans his head on his hand to pray. And Carrie answered soberly, Your father prays for an hour every morning for the ministry and for the children. Oh, her is awed, but then asked, and this is so typical of kids, you know, and mom, why don't you have those marks on your forehead? Hmm. Well, Carrie answered, a little sharp. If I did, who would dress you all, get you breakfast, clean house, teach you lessons, do your schooling with you, and so on and so forth? I got work to do. Well, then her father came out. Habitual abstraction, long enough to have overheard this and to remark gently, um, honey, if you took a little more time for prayer, maybe work would be done quicker. Hmm. Now that reply is uh, fast coming. To which Carrie replied with considerable obstinacy. There isn't but so much time that the Lord will just have to understand that a mother with little ones has got to condense her prayers. And all the moms out here are nodding their heads. The truth of it was that Carrie was not very good at long prayers. She prayed hard and swiftly at times, but she prayed as she worked, and she was always perhaps a little conscious against her will that her voice seemed to go up and come back without the surety of reply. Nonetheless, when she appealed, she appealed quickly. And such prayers are valid and poignant. And we've got to understand the significance of prayers that relates to time. Now, what I want you to notice here at this point is that he's put God on the clock. It's kind of like two minutes to go in the ballgame. Everything's on the clock. You're in the red zone. What should happen? You're up to verse 3. And I want you to continue noticing with me. Would you do this please? Uh, the mice, the me's, the eyes. They just keep coming your way. For my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat bread. Pause. Now at this point, what you and I are spotting here is that this is an individual who's hurting. Hurting physically, hurting emotionally. This person is a person in pain and is losing a sense of time. I thought about that. As I was one day driving down the street and I I paused momentarily, and wrote down some notes, which I'm typically doing when I have to, when I spot something. Well, you never know when they're gonna come into play, you see, and it was, a, it was a sign at the side of the road, there was an advertisement for a pain management clinic. The question appeared in my mind, why not a suffering management clinic? Are they synonymous? Are they different? Do they overlap? Dr. John Kuhner, who's a professor of theology and bioethics at Trinity, helps us. Uh, on one sanctity of human life Sunday, he took my place here to speak at my request. John writes, pain management and suffering management may be two different things. Certainly we need to control pain and great progress has been made in this field. And in the majority of cases, pain can be controlled. Suffering, however, involves more than physical pain. It can also include a host of feelings such as fear, abandonment, isolation, despair, and loss. To respond adequately to suffering, we must sort out the many issues involved medically and elsewhere, and understand the degree to which we're dealing with pain, the degree to which we're dealing with suffering, and how much or how little there is overlap, well put. Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he is obviously in agony. The Bible uses the word, agonizo from the Greek, where we get agony or to agonize. He is suffering, but the pain is still to come on the cross. There will be a convergence on the cross of both suffering and pain. There are points of convergence and points of distinction. The wise individual needs to be able to discern at any given moment am I dealing more with suffering, more with pain, or some combination thereof. Now, this is something that the psalmist is grappling with. My heart struck down like grass, has with it I forget to eat my bread you can almost sense the despair, the depression that's arriving on the scene where he's losing what I will call the rhythms of life. The basic rhythms that are necessary to be able to function effectively. And when the rhythm of life is broken, then those that are counseling such an individual make note and try to help the individual regather, recoup, lost rhythm and bring it back into the normal functioning of everyday life experience he's now not eating because of my loud groaning my bones cling to my flesh i'm like a a desert owl of the wilderness well i was reading in the land of the book by w thompson who traveled a lot in the Middle East, helped me better understand when I'm in the Middle East, and said it was certainly the most somber, austere bird I've ever seen, the desert owl. Man, it gave one the blues just simply looking at it. The psalmist could find no better expressive type of solitude and melancholy by which to illustrate his own state of affairs than that. Man is hurting. He's now describing evidently something that he has just seen. He's hurting physically, he's hurting emotionally, but I would also argue that he's hurting chronologically because not only are we dealing with something during the day, we're also dealing with something at the night time hour. Because notice that it goes on to say this in verse 7 I lie awake, I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. You feel that sense of loneliness, despair? so now here this man is and he's he's grappling with all these matters and he's likening all his experiences to a wide range of observable phenomena including the owl in the middle east and you're asking yourself at this point what can i do for this person and how can i help this person and why hasn't this person reintroduced the sovereign one in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, because it seems as though suffering has become sovereign. Has that ever been part of the experience of some people that you work with, deal with, talk with, and so on? I've had to deal with these things a lot in these past days, more of that in just a few moments. But meanwhile, meanwhile, there's Dr. Comp, And Dr. Comp has been a physician at Yale brilliant, and she knows and loves the Lord and as she pens periodically in her writings, and wrote a book, a commentary on the book of Job from a physician's viewpoint, Why Me? And recounts a particular experience that she had as a physician where she was dealing with a teenage patient in her hospital, and 15-year-old Jerry knew from his symptoms that his cancer had recurred what to do. When Jerry and his family refused treatment, the doctor argued with them about their religious beliefs. She threatened to report them to the Child Protective Services if they did not agree to come to my hospital for treatment. And so things were getting tense on the board when I arrived to see if I can't pick up and rearrange what the prior physician had been involved with. Jerry's dad stood in front of his son's hospital room door with his arms folded. We know the the posture, don't we? We know that look. It's defensive, it's guarded. Grunted a brief, brief greeting without changing his posture. What can I do to help you? I asked him. Help me, he said incredulously. We're here because we don't have a choice. I guided him down the hallway to a friendly visiting room. Dr. Combs says, of course you have a choice. I'm not going to order any treatment you and Jerry don't want. Now, I had no intention to ask a court to approve chemotherapy against this young man's will. If you think treatment will help, we'll make a plan. If you don't want treatment, you're free to go home. And I watched the father crumble in his chair. Why? She writes poignantly. As long as authority figures argued with him over his life's philosophy and theology, he was angry and defiant. But when the control was put in his hands, he fumbled. He fumbled his way to the path he needed to take. Quote, you need to do a bone marrow exam, don't you, he asked. That's the only way you'll know how advanced the cancer is, isn't it? Unquote. Dr. Comp, I've always admired her. Brilliant. Professor, oncologist. I handed him a cup of coffee. If you and Jerry want me to, I answered, I'll do a bone marrow exam, but if you are not planning to go through the treatment, there's really no point to put him through the pain of the procedure. Dad invited me to go with him to talk to his son. The father said, If I pray over Jerry during the bone marrow, he doesn't feel the pain. Is that all right with you? And we got a win-win on our hands. A half hour later, a mutually acceptable plan is in place. During the months that followed, Jerry's dad sat in his room with his Bible open to two verses. I will not give glory to another. And also you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. John 14, 14. If I name it, God will claim it. Now, I never persuaded that dad that medical care in the name of Jesus Christ glorifies God. Nor did he agree with me that because other Christians with great faith had died of cancer, that was a possibility for his son within the will of God. Neither did I try to persuade him. With time, he came to understand that his argument was not with me, or with the medical establishment, but rather, like Job, his argument was with God, a religious man at that. Sometimes prayer is vocalizing, not real prayer. He's grappling physically, he's grappling emotionally, he's grappling verbally, he's using the word like, a simile in grammar, again and again and again. He's also grappling chronologically, day and night. And so you pick it up there in verse eight. And now because he's most likely in exile, the Jews have been removed from Israel at the hands of the Babylonian armies all the day my enemies taunt me those who deride me curse my name use my name for a curse he's sensitive well for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears my drink and because of your indignation and anger for you have taken me up and thrown me down but did God really do that to him? Was that God's directive will or was that God's permissive will, allowing the Babylonians to do such? You see, what we need to do when we're dealing with such people is to help people to work through their assumptions rather than just simply address their accusations. They might be accusing God of something, but rather jumping all over the accusation against God, get behind that hidden door and ask, what sort of assumptions are there being made about God that lead to such accusations? This is the wise way, you see, of addressing issues. This man has got an issue like Job with God, even though he supposedly is praying to God, even though the word Lord has disappeared in verses 1 through 11 in the downward spiral that he's experiencing Uh, withering, withering away, withering away like grass, you see. This is how he views life at this particular moment in his his life experience. What are we going to do? How can we help him? Is there a way to be able to address this? But now. And I said that, but now, intentionally. I want to offer you the alternative. The contrast. Because you and I as we consider contrasting views of pain and suffering. Beginning in verse 12 down to verse 22. Note secondly the upward trajectory due to eternal thinking. But you O Lord are enthroned forever. Now what I need you to do is to continuously go through the but-gods of Scripture. Everything's going wrong, such as Joseph in prison. But God was with him. In the book of Romans, arguably my favorite book of the Bible, uh, there is the apostle Paul articulating in no unmistakable terms, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everything's going wrong in this world. But God. What we need, even in the midst of the trying times of life, are what I will call turning points. And I would pinpoint turning point biblically upon the but God experience that leaps out of the verses and into our hearts. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And you know what? In the second trajectory, I, me, and my disappear. He's no longer self-absorbed. He's absorbed with the sovereign one who is sovereign over suffering. As he was when three days later he raised the second member of the Trinity from, from the grave. So, when you are grappling with this whole no matter, how do you pray and how to pray for someone? You take all this into account. I speak the name of Jesus over you, in your hurting, and your sorrow. I will ask my God to move. I speak the name because it's all that I can do. In desperation, I'll seek heaven and pray this for you. I pray for your healing, that circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray for miracles... Over your life in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I can hear Katie and Nicole singing even now. You're up to verse 13. You arise and have pity on Zion. It's time for favor to favor her. And you're asking, well, how does that have to do, do anything? And well, you see, he's in exile. He's removed from home. He's isolated. He feels detached, disengaged. Do you feel that way? Or maybe you work with someone who feels that way. Man, I did this past week. I'll try to use this illustration as wisely as possible. Five o'clock in the morning, telephone call. I check the, the zip code, area code. I know who it is, out of this region. Worked with this individual for hmm, 25, 26 years. And so, get on the phone. I know he's suicidal. Now I've got a mental checkpoint. I've gone through my days in studying medicine, uh, what, what to take the person through. And so I begin to work with the individual, but he needs a butt god in his life. We've got a downward trajectory happening he needs a but-God moment in order to reverse and create a new trajectory that will take him upward rather than downward. It had been my intent to walk the building at that moment, to see how things are going, but this takes precedent. And so at my desk, I began to walk him through some biblical principles taking them to Jesus, Gethsemane, where there's suffering and to the cross and there's pain, bringing a sense of convergence together because this man has experienced pain for many, many, many a year. But he wants to end his tomorrows. He wants to know if that's okay with God. Can I just go home and see Jesus? Tough questions. This individual has come to know the Lord, supposedly, in my office. He needs a tomorrow brought into his today, doesn't he? And so do we. This is what the psalmist does. He takes the promise of the return to Israel and takes the tomorrow and brings it into his today and gives him hope for tomorrow. So I walk my friend, and I, he is my friend, through a host of things. And we've gone through a lot together. And then I say, hey, bud, um, I tell you what. We've been talking for a while. Uh, what if we pick up on this next week? Lock it into your calendar. Would you do that? He said, yeah, gear." For sure. He's excited. I pray you get off the phone. What's happened? He's just embraced it tomorrow. He's doing just what the psalmist does at this point. He brought a tomorrow into his today. He's saying there is future. There's hope. We'll pick up where we left off. And for a lot of people, they need to know that they can pick up where they left off. And keep moving forward. We need to arrest the downward spiral with a but God and reintroduce the sovereign God uh, as an alternative to the sovereignty of suffering. And uh, I think Katie and Nicole would continue to sing at that point. He's thinking about home. In verse 14, your servants hold her stones dear, speaking of, of Israel's temple have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. Now he's looking forward to the end of time. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Now what we have to do is to understand that when you're dealing with the issues of suffering and the issue of healing, you're going to have to handle the tension, the biblical tension of the now and the not yet. There comes a point in time for the believer who will someday be with the Lord, he or she will have a glorified body. The challenge so often in today's medical terminology, so to speak, of bringing in a theological component, there's an assumption that because of modern-day medical technology, I can look for a glorified body today. And I should appeal for my my physicians, the nursing staff, and so on to bring glorified body-type healing into my present distress. The wise person who knows God's word and embraces the principles of medical wisdom distinguishes between the now and the not yet and helps such a person to be able to think these through in a way that is God-honoring, that I can't over-import the future into the present And neither should I import too much of the present into the future. There is still more to come. You don't waste your suffering. You invest your suffering. Lowen Sanny, when he was president of the Navigators, had the following to say, quote, If you are suffering without succeeding, then someone will succeed after you. If you are succeeding without suffering, then someone suffered before you. Lorne gets it. And he understands the whole matter of pain, suffering, degrees of similarity, degrees of difference, overlap, and so on, and takes it to the cross. And is it any surprise, then, that Jesus prayed over such matters in Gethsemane? Suffering, pain, prayer, all such dynamics brought together? For the sake of time, I'll simply note some concluding verses here. Like 19 through 22. He looked down from his holy height, It's not me looking upward, it's he looking downward. He's got the perspective. He's got the Lord back in the forefront of all this. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion. He said it. He knows that the future is secure. They will declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. So what we're simply doing here at this point is saying that in our culture, there are conflicting trajectories. There is a downward spiral that has to do with the temporal mindset. There's the upward spiral that has to do with the eternal mindset. And when you embrace the upward, the eternal, it's because you've had a but God moment, you see. And then through this, through this, what you're able to do is to put everything in proper perspective. Like Pastor Wearsby's friend After all, when people are suffering, you pray for healing if it's God's will, for strength, for special mercy and pain, and so on. This is what I told her. Thank you, Pastor, she said. But please, pray for one more thing. Pray that I don't waste all this suffering. You can waste it, you can spend it, or you can invest it for God's glory. Jesus did. Let's stand together. Father, I feel like we're just I feel like I just scratched the surface. Forgive me. There is so much here to explore such depths to be pondered but you are the sovereign God, the great physician, the wonderful counselor who helps us to better understand what it is that we are dealing with in a fallen world. But then we take the pain and the suffering of life. We ponder the significance of the fact that you did not isolate yourself from it. Rather, you entered into it. You sent Jesus who suffered, who experienced pain, died for our sins. And three days later, raising him from the dead, you in essence were saying, there's more to come. There's a now, but there's also a not yet. So Father, for the hopeless one, use this to bring hope. For the helpless one, Bring all the various means of help. So through it all, in biblical wisdom, you and you alone get all the glory. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.